Welcome to another edition of the Asymmetric Healthcare Podcast. I'm Tony Fung, and I'm here today with Andrew Marcus. Hello. Rob Winterbottom. Hey. And Dan Benjamin. How's it going? So they just came back from lovely Amsterdam, where they were attending the Fire Dev Days conference. I thought it was great that this conference was uh, in Amsterdam. I know you guys had a lot of fun in Boston. You ate good food, but I hear that Amsterdam was pretty amazing. Well, so in Boston, they actually handed out boxes of Stroopwafel as gifts to attendees. And, and what are Stroopwafels again? They're little thin waffle crackers with a caramel syrup in the middle, which means you have to actually cut the waffle in half, which is rather challenging, apparently. And then you have to spread <laughs> the caramel syrup on and put them back together. So in Boston, they had boxes of these things. In Amsterdam, they actually brought in a vendor who was sitting there making them fresh over in the corner. So they had a Stroopwafel station at the conference. And they are much better fresh than they are in cans. (laughs) Another thing is they did this in Boston, but they always have a night out on the town, one of the last nights. So Thursday night, they get everybody together and they go somewhere. In Boston, we went to a bowling alley and it was just games and that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. Here they took us to a restaurant. It was called... Zoutpool, am I saying that right? Yep. But it's it's kind of a seasonal place. So in the winter, it's almost Christmassy themed, and then in the summers, it's more beachy themed. But it was really neat because they had some local foods, local drinks. They did have a really big scotch selection, which was always nice. Mm-hmm. But they also had a lot of interesting games. One that I actually tried was, I'm not really sure the name or the history of the game, but it it's kind of like a door frame that has chickens hanging on it. Rubber chickens. <laughs> yeah, rubber, yeah, rubber chickens. chickens right. We should probably clarify that. Um <laughs> But there's these rubber chickens hanging from this door and you have people standing on each side of it and then somebody pulls a string and one of the chickens randomly falls and it's who can catch it first. And, and how many chickens? Is it five or six maybe? Yeah, I think it's an odd number because you want to see who can get the most by the end of it. So okay. it's probably five chickens, but it was very interesting, especially after a few drinks. Did you win? Uh, no, <laughs> I did not win. <laughs> I believe I played with a gentleman from Scotland and he got two, I got one, and I think the other one or two fell through. They ended up shaking hands at one point, though. Yeah. Because they're, they're trying to go after the chickens from opposite sides. and They met in the middle. Yeah. Yep. No chicken. No chicken. <laughs> yeah. In Boston, Andrew, you gave a talk that was very well received, and then they invited our team back to give uh, talks on various topics. Yeah. In Boston, we talked a little bit about security and other fire best practices as they related to our Phoenix Fire Server, which was fairly brand new at the time. In Amsterdam, we extended those talks to give a full 40-minute section on security that was much more of a deep dive into all the things you should be doing. And there's actually a lot in the fire spec already that says, here are the best practices around security, follow these things. But that doesn't mean people read that part Mm -hmm. or really understand what it's saying. Your talk was more of an overview of the do's and don'ts of building a secure fire server and then, Dan, you gave, uh, sounds like a more in-the-weeds workshop. Can you tell us more about that? Yeah, absolutely. So what I did is I kind of put together a version of our Phoenix Fire server with some vulnerabilities and some of the security pulled out of it and built some tools around that, some open source stuff and some stuff that we had written to give the developers a chance to go at a vulnerable fire server from the other side. So not just building it and making it work and getting the results that you expected out of it, but to really dig into it from an attacker's perspective and seeing how one small misconfiguration or not adding a single line of code can really impact the security. With that, we were able to find some vulnerabilities and some of the other servers that were out there as they tested 
some of the scripts and things that I had written for uh, the exercise, they tested it on their server and found out that they were vulnerable as well. well <laughs> it was kind of cool, though, to actually be there and have developers of other fire servers being like, oh, shoot, maybe we should fix that. Yeah, and security is definitely a big community. It has a big community focus similar to fire. So getting these things out there and making developers aware of it is really part of the job. Mm-hmm. And then Rob, you gave a very well-received talk on GraphQL. Yeah, so GraphQL is something we've had a lot of experience here at Asymmetric with in the past. And there's been some talk about GraphQL in the fire community, but not a lot of development effort towards it. So in the past couple months, we built a GraphQL server. We used a lot of code generation so that we could generate the GraphQL code necessary to support multiple versions of Fire and kind of help speed up the process of supporting new versions. And then we wanted to just talk about it here and to see what the community felt about it, see if people would be willing to contribute back to our project and back to the specification so that we can get something completed and then just get more people kind of interested in GraphQL. It was really nice at the end of the talk that uh, Graham Grieve ended up standing up and saying that this was something that he was very interested in and he would like to see everybody's Fire servers support GraphQL. So that was really cool. Mm-hmm. And it's also interesting because that part of the spec is actually still being worked on. But he sees a lot of potential in it. We see a lot of potential in it. The community hasn't really quite figured out how to use it yet. And that was one of the things that we discovered as part of the talk, that people are not as far along as we thought. We're sort of actually in the lead in figuring out how to ma- actually make the GraphQL actionable. So Rob, even though your talk was very well attended, a lot of people did not have hands-on experience with GraphQL. Yeah, so I, I plan on asking a question when I started the talk about who here has actually had experience with GraphQL. And I didn't expect a lot of hands, but I didn't expect only you know a couple, like maybe less than five. Mine so, was one of them. <laughs> it, yeah, it was, uh, it was a little surprising to see that there's that few people with experience. And I'm, I'm sure there were some shy people in the audience that just didn't want to raise their hand. But it's been around for a while, but it's definitely an alternative to REST. And I think the community is really focused on building out the REST API and, and making sure that that's strong. And there just hasn't been a lot of focus on this. I'm definitely trying to encourage more people to, to look into it and play with it. At the conference, did you notice any trends uh, within the FIRE community? So one of the big things that seemed a little different from previous conferences is that Microsoft, Google, and Amazon have all entered the room. And so everyone is making space for them, but with the understanding that they're going to end up ultimately making a big impact. And to add to that, there does seem to be kind of a target focus for some of the big names. So Google did seem to have a lot of features supported for uh, researchers, so de-identification of data, machine learning, um, SQL projections, and they had a really big feature set that was kind of ready to go, whereas Microsoft seems to almost be taking more of a platform approach where they wanted to give you this one-click functionality to stand up a Fire server, but then you could also start building your own Fire applications on top of that, maybe bring in your own actionable insights dashboard or some sort of analytics services, but they want to kind of enable you to build Fire applications, and Google... seems like they're giving you more of a a complete product. And so I guess given some of the trends that you were seeing, um, do you all have any predictions for the future of Fire? Oh gosh, that's a a tall question. Um, I think in the Fire community, 
everybody is really trying to push the envelope and move forward and create these wonderful apps, great service. But the problem going forward with a lot of this, it's, and it's not a technology problem. Granted, there are some technology issues. It's more policy and really looking at what the, the big players out there are doing. Your Cerners and your Epics and the big EHRs that are out there, they're just now starting to support Fire. Uh, if we're going to move forward on this, then these big vendors really need to go into it wholeheartedly so that the rest of the community can build on top of what they already have. And we're almost at a point where Fire becomes actionable and everybody is using it. And you know this sort of interoperability kumbaya that everyone talks about there's definitely a strong sense at these conferences that we are on the cusp of that and we'll be there very soon, <laughs> but um, there's still work to be done. So ultimately, what is this going to do for patients if this kumbaya ever happens? <laughs> it has the promise to allow patients to move their data around between different healthcare systems and different doctors and be able to use it on their phone and integrate other phone devices that they might already have back into their healthcare system and have all of the data flow seamlessly between all the different healthcare providers. In theory, that will allow doctors to actually coordinate care better with the patients and with other doctors who are treating a patient. It'll also make data more available for research and not be sort of siloed and hard to get at. The flip side of that, of course, is keeping the data secure while it flows through those channels and also dealing with issues around privacy and making sure that patients actually have control over where their data is going and who's seeing it. Um, I think one thing the community would like to see too is for patients themselves to have more control over what applications can access what data. So if you're using a fitness tracker or some sort of other iOS app, you might want to give them access to certain things, but maybe not access to all your health records. So if you could block them from seeing your lab results or seeing other patient information, but maybe give them access to just like some of the simple readings that your iPhone reads in, I think people would feel a little bit safer knowing that they have control over who can see what. Uh, it might be a little bit more difficult for them to manage initially, but I think being transparent with that and letting patients kind of pick and choose what application can see what data would be a really nice thing for people to have in the future. That said, I'm not sure that a lot of patients will actually take the time to figure out who should have access to their data. Um, I mean, how many people read their Facebook Security settings right, seriously. Right. Like you, and, you scroll to the bottom and you right. click the box, and then right. you, or you, you say post, I right. allow this and I don't allow this and mm -hmm. I do allow this. Most people haven't really figured out what kind of access they want other people to have, mm -hmm. um, so that's going to be a challenge in healthcare as well. Okay, so a lot of this does depend on keeping all of this very very sensitive information safe, and it seems to me that it also involves a lot of trust and buy-in from the patients themselves. So, Dan, as a cybersecurity professional, I mean, this is really hard, right? I mean, how do you build trust with patients? How do you keep all this this stuff secure? Building trust with patients is obviously going to be a difficult point right up front. One of the big things that we can kind of push for is a larger security community uh, to start taking a look at these applications, to start looking at uh, the different protocols and the way the spec kind of lays everything out so that you've got a much wider audience kind of looking for those vulnerabilities. On top of that, there has to be some sort of general policy to allow for bug reporting, vulnerability reporting in kind of an open forum that 
gives security researchers and application developers uh, kind of a pathway to resolve some of these issues without exposing patients' data to risk. Beyond that, patients and anybody who is going to be using these apps or fitness devices later on down the road, they really need to take a lot of their security into their own hands. Now, you need to read that fine print in the terms of service, go into your phone right now and look at your privacy settings and what applications are allowed to see. You know, why does Facebook have access to my SMS messages and contacts? And right you know, now, a lot of people don't really care enough to spend the time to do that. That's probably going to change um, as your data just becomes even more places than it currently is. I know iOS, for example, when you install an application, it's not just allowed to start using your microphone. It's not allowed to just harvest your contacts. There are, a lot of the times, the first time you run it, it's going to give you pop-ups to say, will you allow this, will you allow that? And if you just blindly click yes to everything, then you might not realize what you're giving away. But like Dan says, uh, it's worth just auditing what you set every now and then. Go into your settings and check out what you've agreed to, just in case you forgot. And the fact that it's become more granular actually sort of forces people to start thinking about, well, why does this app need my microphone? Which right. is not really a thing that happened even two right. years ago. Right. And so that will probably apply to the healthcare space as well in that people will have access to control which doctors see which records. For example, a lot of people find their mental health care records are a lot more sensitive. They don't want their doctor to know that they had an episode of depression. They don't necessarily want their family to find that out. Mm -hmm. right? So there are data sets that people will want to protect. And the more options they have around that, the easier that will be. Did anything happen as a result of all of your talks? Uh, yeah, incidentally, there was uh, a few things that happened. Uh, the one that really surprised me the most was uh, in the middle of Andrew's security talk, Graham actually kind of issued a challenge to the, to the greater fire and security community, uh, essentially a bug bounty that says, you know what, if you can get something by my validator or if you can break my validator uh, in such a way that it allows something through, there's going to be a prize. He didn't say what that prize was. Uh, so I'm, he hasn't I'm, figured it out yet. <laughs> I'm, I'm hoping it's more than another box of Stroop waffles. Or but, everlasting yeah. respect from the fire community. Maybe yeah, a yeah. nice high five. <laughs> so that's out there, um, and I've kind of started messing around with that, and hopefully I'll have it broken and ready to give a talk on it uh, at the next Fire Dev Days. Incidentally, the uh, bug that we found when you were doing your workshop was related to something that validator was supposed to protect, right? Yes, Yep. So uh, one of the things that we specifically called out was uh, the narrative field that's uh, inside uh, the fire spec and mm -hmm. how even though it allows you to potentially submit raw HTML, security tags in it, or the security portion of it says you can't have any active content. Uh, it's kind of hard to define. Right. It's very difficult to define and there's always ways around it. So I kind of figured out a way around it, and uh, we submitted that with one of the production fire servers, and lo and behold, that vulnerability existed. So that caused them to go through and contact their devs right there, as a matter of fact. <laughs> he closed that window, opened up another chat window, uh, put in a ticket with his devs, and had it finished and patched by, what, maybe within an hour or so? Yeah, I believe so. It was pretty cool, though, actually, to show that these things that we're talking about actually do exist 
and they actually are problems and they exist in the wild. And then people took that seriously and took the corrective action. So we were able to actually have a pretty big influence, I think, in the way that people perceive security within the fire community. And ho- hopefully that interest will continue. Yes, to the next one, which is what, June in Redmond, Washington? That's right. It's actually on the Microsoft campus. Oh, nice. And Microsoft has actually been making some big plays in fire. And we look forward to what they are going to come up with by next June. Mm-hmm. Great. And for those of you who want to know more about fire, you can listen to the Asymmetric Healthcare podcast, episode one, wherein we talk a little bit more about fire and what it means for patients. So thank you all for being here. It was really nice talking to you. Yeah, Thanks for having us. Thank you. Until next time.